Thank you. That's what they call me in Massachusetts, John the Indian. And I'm very happy to be here. I always, lo I like being an Indian because I can always say that I still have a reservation. <laughs> <laughs> That's my intellectual joke. <laughs> I feel, I feel good being here. I, I have met so many of my friends uh, since I've been here that I have met somewhere in other conferences. I always feel somewhat special when I'm asked to or invited to go to the conferences and to to speak. It's, uh, it is something that uh, I would have never believed if someone had told me when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous that if I should stay sober. Uh, that one day I would be asked to travel all the way to Maryland and to speak in the uh, Friday night meeting. I suppose I am like so many of us when I first came to AA. I, I, uh, I felt that I didn't belong here. Uh, when I was invited to attend my first meeting, I was in my late twenties. And uh, I left, I was brought up in a little reservation way up in Canada, in Quebec City. I lived there 14 years. And uh, I left when I was 14 years old. My parents were dead and, and I had no home. So I went to uh, lumber camp in Patton, Maine. And there I got a job washing dishes where I stayed for four years. And then uh, when I was 18, I left to join the Canadian Infantry where I spent three years and a half washing more damn dishes. <laughs> and uh, I was 21 years old when I took a drink and I lived in the Skid Row for seven years. And one night I was in a mission in Syracuse, New York, when an Indian fellow came to see me, someone that I have once met in Tupper Lake, New York. I, uh, he brought me to his home that night. But Ike, like many of us, he lost everything and he wound up in Salvation Army in Syracuse, New York. And, and they had some meetings, they, he attended some meetings and Someone told him that there was another Indian in the mission who was having a lot of problems, and, and I always had trouble with wine sores. I looked like hell by the time I finished drinking. And so I usually looked pretty bad. So I walked in one night, and he says to me, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it didn't impress me at all because I didn't know what in the hell it was. I've never been to AA said, would you like to go to a meeting? And I said, no. Because <laughs> my problem was, when I was sober, that I wasn't dressed, and I had a long hair. I'd been on a, a little tooth, you call it, you know. 
like like three months. <laughs> I go on those little ones, you know. And uh, usually I, I lived in the street most of the time, and by the time I stopped drinking, I looked terrible. And I feel the same way. And of course, when I'm sober, I'm usually a very sensitive person. Uh, sometimes when I speak, uh, I will say that I'm an extremely sensitive person. I get hurt easily, and I don't suffer well. <laughs> and so when I'm sober, I don't go anyplace. It's my face, about three weeks, my face would clear up. And I wouldn't go any place until I can get a suit. I usually go to Salvation Army. You can get a suit there for $3. That's better than 25 years ago. I think the prices have gone up since then. Uh, and so when Ike told me that there were about 200 people in Central Group, I didn't want to go to meeting at all. But Ike says to me, they have coffee and donuts and they're free. So I said, we'll go. <laughs> and that's how I have attended now you know I was in my late 20s and I have never been married I never had a driving license and I couldn't read and write and I I bring a, a very unhealthy attitude to an AA meeting I if someone told me that night that if I should stay sober that one day I would be invited to travel all the way to Maryland on jet <laughs> with expenses paid. <laughs> I don't want you to have resentments. We, some of us, some of us have it, and some of us don't. And you know, I, I was thinking about that today because I, I got into a plane about 2.30 and they discovered the tank was leaking. And uh, we sat there for another hour and ready to leave and then they discovered we had thunderstorms. So I sat there for another hour and 15 minutes and I discovered one thing that a lot of social drinkers are very impatient. <laughs> or maybe they're alkies, I don't know. But I, I got impatient a little bit. But you know, there is something about our education in the program. You know, it's, it's a type of an education that, uh, that allows you to look back and, and to see so much that otherwise I guess you pass by in life. And here I was, you know, I'm sitting in a jet. More than that, I know where I'm going. <laughs> and that in itself is a miracle. <laughs> but more important, I've been invited. <laughs> and, you know, I, you know, I, I never had it so good. So I was sitting there thinking about what it is, is how it used to be, what happened, and what it's like now. And the only thing I was a little bit worried about is that I wouldn't be here on time. I didn't want anybody to take my place. 
After all, I was invited. <laughs> but if someone, you know, that night when I attend my first meeting, the thing that impressed me from the first time I came to AA, as I was walking to the doors of AA, a man stood in Syracuse, New York. There was a lawyer who uh, was over about 13 years, I guess, and every Friday night he stood at the door and he shook hands at everyone who came through that door. And of course, when he seen me, with my long hair and wine swords, and I you know I wasn't dressed. I knew that, I always did when I was sober. Never bothered me when I'm drunk. But he rushed over and he grabbed my hand with his two hands and he says to me, am I so glad to see you? And I don't know whether I was glad to see him. <laughs> but I remember sitting down with a coffee and I think that my first speaker in AA was, uh, uh, used to be a lady judge. And she said, if you are new, please try to identify. Now can you imagine? Here I am, I'm in my late 20s. I have been away from my reservation since at the age of 14. I spent four years in lumber camp washing dishes. <laughs> then I spent three years and a half in Canadian Army washing more damn dishes. <laughs> then I took a drink and I'm in skits for seven years. I have never been married, never had a driving license, never owned a car. I couldn't read and write. And I'm in a mission supposed to pay 35 cents a night and I'm behind three weeks rent. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and I'm sitting there with wine sores and long hair. Can you imagine me saying to myself, you know, I'm just like her. <laughs> and it isn't that I have never met a judge before. <laughs> I met one particular judge 43 times. And he never once asked me to try to identify. <laughs> but I think I like to talk about more about my first meeting because I see this lady that I, you know, I didn't even understand. She she used big words, and I memorized her talk couple of years later and I still didn't know what in the hell she was talking about. <laughs> she used to get up and she used to say that it's a mental obsession that precedes the first drink and once you take a drink now it's coupled with a physical compulsion. <laughs> and I would say, holy Christ. Time came when I wished if I had her disease <laughs> because I thought it was high class. <laughs> but I was leaving at the meeting and this man, this lawyer, 
suppose there's always someone. I suppose God put somebody to keep an eye on us. There's always somebody. I think there's always somebody who is very special for all of us. And this man, I was leaving and he stopped me and he put his arms around me and he says to me, uh, I have some friends here I want you to meet before you go. And I guess that uh, people used to say in those days, come back, we need you. And uh, that kind of touched me. Probably because I was looking to be needed someplace. Sometimes I wonder when some speakers will tell us that God moves in mysterious ways. And sometimes I look back in my own life and I ask myself a question, how, how it was so wonderful that a time in my life when, when I when the past I was so ashamed of, you know, I spent most of my life telling lies about myself. When I had no plans at all for tomorrow, and today when I didn't know whether I should turn to the left or to the right because there was no meaning in either direction, uh, I was, uh, you know, I couldn't think of uh, receive a greater gift than to be allowed to walk into a room like this where people understand you and people accept you and people care for you. So you might say what touched me in my first meeting probably even greater than what words could have given me about the nature of my sickness. And I think that uh, so often today uh, when I stand up, sometimes I see only the strange faces. But the feeling in my own heart is always this feeling of, uh, I belong here. And it is something that I never really had any time in my life, even when I was a kid, when I lived in that reservation. You know, my, when, when my father died, my father liked to drink. And uh, after he died, we lost uh, eight members in our family in five years. They all died with TB. And when I was 13, my mother died with TB. And I suppose my people felt that I too had TB, so I couldn't find a home. And I lived in this old empty house for about a year with a dog, and I'm, uh, I, I'm, I, you might say I'm a dreamer, I, uh, I used to, I used to crawl between two mattresses with a dog, and I, and I used to dream that one day I would leave home, and I would find me a big home, and I would have a big job, and I would have a lot of clothes, and I would have a nice looking girl and I would have two cars. <laughs> and my feeling was, if you have these things, then you don't feel the way I do. And people don't mistreat you. And I, too often, I often wondered that oftentimes in AA, I listened to people who talk about wanting to commit suicide. 
And I guess for one reason that I never considered suicide ever in my life was because I've always wanted to live. But I lived in a dream world as I know it today. I used to, uh, as television came along, I improved my dreams. <laughs> then I met John Wayne. I loved John Wayne. I went to see all his movies. I, I never really cared the way he killed Indians. <laughs> but, uh, but I like something, you know, I think what I've loved. I think I loved a man who never looked for approval. Uh, it's, it's a quality. And I'm sure when God gave a man a right to choose, he gave him that power uh, to live in the spirit of independence. But I like John Wayne because, you know, he, when he's ready, he did what he wanted to do. I think my sickness was that I would never once consider that are those qualities reserved to all human beings. I think that for years in my life I felt that what John Wayne has is something that you're born with, something you have it because you're strong and because you have money. And I never, it was years in the program before I was taught that they are a 12 steps of recovery and one of them talk about the spirit of independence, man who lives on what he believes in and not what other people want him to believe or to do. But that's many moons ago. Indians in my reservation, they used to talk about lumber camps in Maine. So one day I decided I would leave and I grabbed a freight and sometimes later, I arrived in Patton, Maine, and I walked into the office and I asked for the job. <laughs> I was 14, and they told me that I was too young. But the fellow said, you know, we are looking for a dishwasher. The Second World War started to take all the younger people, and they needed someone to wash dishes. So the camp was 26 miles one of those CC camps that Roosevelt started. <laughs> so you see, I go back a little bit. I arrived in the camp and I met the fellow by the name of Bill Langster and he gave me a job and he became a good friend. And oftentimes he would bring me to his home. I would stay for the weekend and I became friends friends with the family. Matter of fact, it was his family who felt that it was not healthy that I should live in lumber camp for so long that I needed to join the younger people. So one morning, Bill says to me, John, my family thinks that you should leave and join the army. You should be with the younger people. And he said, who knows, John, you might win a medal or two. So I, uh, I left. I went to Quebec City 
because my idea was to join the army and go back to my reservation and show my people that I'm now a man and a soldier. Someone told me that if I should join the American army and if I get a pass, I would be so far away I wouldn't be able to go home. And to be honest with you, I'm not a... I never was a real patriotic person. <laughs> Uh, screw up as I was then, I knew that this country was ours before it was yours. And I, <laughs> and I wasn't going to risk my life for nobody. But I was hoping maybe I can win a medal without getting hurt. And so I went to Quebec City and I joined the infantry. But I didn't know that if you had no education that you couldn't go on training. So they gave me a job washing dishes. And what I discovered in my recovery, that I like washing dishes in, in, in the lumber camp. It, it didn't bother me, I enjoyed it. But I didn't like to wash dishes in Canadian Army because, well, my attitude was different. That if you wash dishes in Canadian Army, you're not as good as the next person. And so I never went home. I didn't know. I didn't know in those days that, uh, that there was something wrong with my attitude. I just felt that anyone who washed dishes in the army is not as good as the next person and I didn't want anybody to know it. That's always been my problem when I was sober. I, when I was in the army for one year, I asked them to give me another test because I couldn't honestly see that younger people were any smarter than I was. And they gave me a test and they marked me M4, which meant that I wasn't qualified to be trained. And I accepted that for years. I never questioned it. And sometimes I wonder whether I was looking for something like that. That I have, it seems, a type of a sickness that I look for those things. Uh, and you know, it takes years and years to, to learn that uh, the Canadian Army was wrong. <laughs> I remember once I I met the school teacher. She taught school for 40 years and she retired and uh, I asked her one time if she could teach me how to read and write and she said I taught thousands of people how to read and write. She didn't impress me at all. <laughs> anyway, she helped me to get uh, to memorize 69 questions. I took the test and I passed. That was when I was 35 years old, so over almost six years. She says to me that night, John, would you wish to continue on your education? I said, no. Then she said, do you know you have a great mind? And I didn't answer that because, what the hell, Canadian Army is bigger than she is. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm here to tell you that any school teacher taught school for 40 years knows a good mind when she sees one. <laughs>
And I say that with all the humility that <laughs> you can have in using that type of a statement. But I accepted that. I questioned it no more. And I suffered. Well, I wouldn't go out with a girl because I was ashamed that uh, she might find out that I was washing dishes. I wouldn't go home. They gave me a furlough. They gave me the pass. I wouldn't go home. And it's interesting when I look back uh, long before I took a drink how I had trouble belonging in life. Telling lies for me was nothing more than just to belong in life. I didn't tell lies because I was so stupid to think that there is any honor in telling lies. But I guess I told lies because I wanted people, I thought they should know something about me that they wanted to know in order to accept me. And I have learned much later in my sobriety it was more important for me to accept myself in life, something that I needed a lot of help in my way of life to do. So drinking came to me when I got my discharge at the age of 21. I, uh, I had a friend, him and I bought a suit, and we went to the uh, Bluery Cafe in Montreal, that's in the third floor, where the orchestra was playing, and there I took my first drink. And there I joined the younger people. As when I drank, alcohol, from the very first night, alcohol took away those things that robbed me when I was sober. You know, when I drank, I could talk to anybody. And I think that when God gave man a right to choose, or will to choose, he gave him that right to be comfortable with another human being. And I think the reason that I felt unworthy with other people, it was because I was sick. And I am a type of person who needed a drink to belong. Just simply to talk to somebody and feel good about it. I went out with a girl the first night I got drunk. It was about time. <laughs> Can you imagine someone said, I wonder why that kid drinks. <laughs> and I'm not saying that I'm an alcoholic because I was born in reservation or because I couldn't read and write or because I washed dishes. I think there are a lot of other people in this world who like me and they don't drink. Maybe the poor bastards don't know enough to drink. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I liked about drinking, when I drank, if you didn't like me, you had problems. And I love that. I really love that. What I didn't know, that when I was sober, and if you didn't like me, I had problems. You know, I was in uh, Loyola University not too long ago with uh, Father John Powell. Him and I shared a room for three days. We did a seminar. And he was talking about that, you know, he said you could he could talk to 100 people and they're all laughing and one walks out and that's the one he chased. <laughs> Jesus, I could identify with that. How I suffer if you didn't like me. 
see, I didn't know that uh, I live, I have a type of a sickness that seeks approval and acceptance. It is my sickness. It, it's a punishment, especially if people don't like me. The spirit of independence, on the other hand, is one who walks on what he believes in. See, I didn't know that. To know another thing that with me I could drink. And I've heard that many times in AA. From the very first time I drank, I could drink. And I loved it. I mean like eight hours. And not getting drunk. You know, if someone came to me that night and said, John, you continue on drinking and you live in the skid row for seven years, uh, how could you believe that something can be so bad but it makes you feel so good? I mean, you don't have that insight. But it is, uh, it is a quite an education that we do have in AA. I suppose you have to be an alcoholic and then member of Alcoholics Anonymous and then being taught to have this type of an insight this type of an education that allows you to look back and to examine once again what else happened the night I took my first drink besides feeling comfortable talking to other people. The thing that happened, that alcohol started to rob me right away. It started to rob me when he made me feel good simply because I have never been a social drinker. And I have been taught that my sickness is a progression. From the time I took my first drink, it got worse, whether I knew it or not. And the question for me and for all of us, it's time. And only two years later, when I was only 23 years old, uh, I arrived in Skid Row. But even then, I liked to drink. Even then, I enjoy drinking. I've always loved booze. I listened to a speaker one night. He said, he drank for 30 years and he never once enjoyed it. And I said, poor bastard. <laughs> Imagine anyone drank it that long and never enjoyed it. What a way to go. I like to drink. But I had other things that I wanted. There were many times I stopped drinking because I, uh, I wanted a home. I've always wanted a nice home. I wanted a nice clothes. I wanted a nice girl. And I wanted a car. And I would stop to see Major Harvey in Salvation Army. Well, for five days, I would walk and sweat it out. Or I would go to mission. One night, I went to mission, and I attended services, because if you attend services in a mission, Tom will always give you a bed. And I was sitting there when a fellow got up, and he said that for many years, he was a bum just like us. He said, until one night you accepted Christ as his personal savior, and since then his entire life has changed. He said he got married, he bought a home, he has a new station wagon, 
and then he says, um, review bombs can do the same thing. Very nice goer. Very spiritual. And I told you I tell intellectual jokes, you got. <laughs> So it kind of touched me. So then all you have to do is move forward, he says. So I move forward. And I knew nothing about Christ over the four years that I spent in Lumber Carol. I used to listen to Lumberjacks talking about him. And, and, and uh, by the time they finished with him, you wouldn't believe me either. But, uh, but someone once said, a drunk comes to a point in life like a drowning man who grabs the straw. It's hope against hope. Doesn't make sense. And it didn't make sense to me. I get up and I kneel down. This guy was sincere. He kneeled down next to me and he said, Son, you're saved. Well, the first morning I was facing a judge. He says to me, John, do you know how many times you've been out here? He kind of touched me, called me by my first name. For a little, I felt important. How many? Once you've been up here, now you know when you travel the way I do, you don't keep track of everything. He says, you've been up here 43 times. And I said, no wonder he looks familiar. Then he says to me that the fair park, it's for the decent people to go there on Sundays and not for a bums like you. And then he says, you're Indians, you know, you come to this city, you work for one week to get great and then you get drunk and you get into a fight. That's all you're good for, is fight. And he took his glasses off and he gave me six months in Jimmyville. And I said to myself, this girl, you don't like Indians anyway. <laughs> Because he was bald-headed. Uh, I figured maybe my great-grandfather got to him first before I did. He had a big fat resentment. And I think, like all of us, I think every one of us, we try. I tried, and by the time I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I brought with me a, a mountains of evidence about the nature of my sickness. And when I listened to uh, speakers in AA, uh, the language of sobriety completely escaped me. I could not identify at all. But I came back to AA because this was the first place that I felt that people wanted me. And that's where I have been fortunate. I met my sponsor in AA. My sponsor, Pat, was a man that I never liked. He was another bum with a degree. And uh, and I would wound up in Salvation Army and Major Harvey would give him a job in the office and he would give me a job working on a truck for a dollar a week. And I had this feeling that always looked down on me. And I can't stand that. 
And I used to say to myself, wait, when we get drunk next time, I'm going to kill the bastard. <laughs> and a couple of times, I almost did. He used to say to bums, don't drink with that Indian. Wish you for nothing. And what Pat doesn't know that I have a little room up here and I put things in there when I'm sober. And when I drink, I take them out one by one as I go along. <laughs> Good evening. But he walked in, you know, Pat got lost and nobody knew. Someone said he joined something. And he walked into Central Group one night. He was all dressed up like he always was when he was sober. And he had a girlfriend. He walks up to me and he says, John, I'm your sponsor. And I said, not again, you know. He says, oh, I have a new car outside. And you know, I look back. By this time, you know, I was sober and nobody knew I was in a mission because I wouldn't take a ride. I knew that people in AA or anywhere else don't particularly care anyone who live in a mission and that's true today. We really don't. And uh, I didn't want anybody to know it. But I didn't mind Pat because Pat was a bum like me. And he would pick me up every night and he would bring me to meetings. And you know in those days there were you have to travel a long ways. And he used to bring me a half a sandwich. He used to say that he can only eat half of it. And I find out much later in my sobriety that Pat never eats sandwiches. And he would pick up the rest of the bums and would say, we have to get sandwich for that Indian. And he would give me half of it because he was afraid that I might find out that he was feeding me. And you know, you sometimes, you, you know, when, you, when we talk about all the nice things we have in AA, we look back sometimes when we, we see people who really care. I mean, people would stop and get you a sandwich. People, see, I was so sick that I didn't say thank you. And you know, I never once bought the gas for Pat. I never recovered enough to be able to thank him. Uh, we went in separate ways. Pat, 17 years later, took a drink, and he died in the Peter Hall that him and I shared many times. And uh, I don't feel bad about it because uh, uh, I'm grateful today that uh, he was, uh, he was one in AA that I felt not liked, but we had something in common, <laughs> which wasn't hell of a lot. But Pat was the only person who stopped the car one night in the mission and said, John, I know you like AA, but you can live this way and live with those bums. You have to get out of mission. But I, I didn't want to leave the mission. I felt that if I stay there, and go to meetings, I could stay sober. But I think uh, God was on his side because one night the damn place burned down and 
three o'clock in the morning, I went to see Pat, and I said, mission burned down. He said, that's the grace of God, and uh, uh, I stayed. The next day, he brought me to the 12th Stiff House, and they gave me a job. Saved me $7 and a half a week and a free, be- a free room. And my job was to wash and wax floors and to make a coffee and answer the telephone and wash dishes. <laughs> and I think the, uh, uh, I would say today, among many rewards that I have been given in my sobriety, one that I have learned to live like a white man, dollar down and dollar a week. <laughs> Second, I bought me a dishwasher. <laughs> I remember I had this guy all hooked up and my daughter filled it up and I said let me push the first button and the thing hum and I said hum the cheap bastard <laughs> and the phone said what's all that for I said nothing <laughs> but I get uh, I get thrown out from this place the, uh, someone, some lady called one night and she needed help and these people will came to this place and they threw cards every night. So I told them that there was someone who needed help and when they told me, when I told them who she was, they told me that she's been around for years and that's all she does. She used people in AA. Now, you know, I was sick, but I knew that was wrong. My problem was, I like what Father Martin said some whence we are rational people and we must learn to live with our heads. But I've always acted the way I felt in my life. Uh, if you hurt my feelings real bad, I acted real bad. I, I never knew that, uh, that there was something greater in life. And I didn't know how to act when I was right. So I did what I've always did when I feel bad. I upset the table. <laughs> and when I punch one of them right in his mouth. And I knocked him down right on his arm. And that was my first 12-step call. <laughs> You don't fool along with me, kid. <laughs> so they throw me out. <laughs> and I'm walking down Fayette Street and I was so mad. Because you see, I was right. My problem was I had to learn to live on what I believe in and not to act how I feel. Someone called Pat. Three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. He finally found me walking in the Fayette Street about a mile away from the club. Well, he didn't bother me walking in the middle of the night. I lived outside all my life. But I felt good that he picked me up and brought me to his home. And next day, he brought me to Major Harvey, back to Salvation Army and back to the trucks for a dollar a week. And I was there for about a year and a half. Went to meetings every night. Then I started to travel. You know, when I was sober five years, I was still in Skid Row. 
by this time I had problems. I really felt that. I, I, I liked AA and I went to meetings every night, almost every night. Uh, when I traveled, I, I got the directory from the club and I knew where the meetings was. But I couldn't tell anybody in AA that, uh, you know, I would be sleeping in some empty car. And I couldn't tell people how lonely it was. Uh, I, I, I developed uh, a type of a feeling in the program that after, say, six or seven months, it's supposed to change. It seems that everybody who got up, you know, been sober six months, and he said, I'm back in the big bed. Right, I'm sober five years, and I'm sleeping with a cat, an empty car that nobody wants. And I thought, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. People talk about getting their driving license, getting promotion, and the more they talk about, the more I realize that maybe because I have no education, maybe because I cannot read and write. And I, I meet some Indians who never drank and they had nothing. And I think that I almost accepted the fact that for the rest of my life I was going to live this way. I finally left the New York State and I went to Massachusetts. Uh, I arrived there at 1 o'clock in the morning and, and I didn't know where I was going. I was 34 years old. But I think that now that I look back, I believe that AA unfolds the way it does. And I believe that I have to go through everything I did in order to be where I am right now. And you know, I'm kind of proud where I am right now. I really am. And I suppose if I wish to live my life all over again, I would probably have to go through everything I did including it like hell to it. I started to paint houses. I was having a lunch in this restaurant owned by the uh, member of AA when the waiters asked me, John, do you know of any contractor in town that would paint a house? I said, I do. I said, me. He said, I didn't know you're a contractor. I said, I didn't see them. Would you come over and give me an estimate? And I did for $300. And I got my first job because other contractors wanted twelve to $1,400. So I said, Paul, I said to Paul who owned the restaurant, I got a job, but I don't have the money. See, nobody knew that I was still sleeping outside. <laughs> Paul says, why don't you go and ask Rita to give you some money to start your business. So Rita gave me $100 and I bought the coveralls. I figured if you're going to be a president in your own company, <laughs> you might as well get your white coveralls. So I get white coveralls and a hammer and a scraper and, a, and paint and I carried everything. I met a member of AA Saturday night. He worked in a telephone company and he loaned me the 60-foot ladder. And you know, this, this place was so huge that I have to build a scaffold <laughs> on top of it. But thank God for Paul who owned the restaurant, I didn't starve. My next house was the plumber I met in AA. 
who had a ranch house and he said, John, all you need is a 10-foot stepladder. But he lived seven miles from Marlboro. <laughs> so I had a problem. I borrowed a 10-foot stepladder and I got all my drop pots together and my things and I stood in the corner and I stopped the bus. <laughs> and uh, this guy, you couldn't believe. He, uh, he stopped the bus, he looks at my ladder and he looks at me and he says, you can't be serious. And I said, I am, I'm self-employed and and I have no other means of getting to work. I bet this guy was an alky. You know what he, you know what he says to me? If I give you a ride, which you promise you'll never do it again. <laughs> My next house was the school teacher. She taught school for 40 years. Paul said, if you're going to stay in business, you better get yourself a car. I said, I don't have a driving license. I said, get that first. <laughs> so I get friendly with this lady, telling me about 40 years she taught school. So I said to her one night, I'd like to get a driving license. She said, did you ever had a driving license? And I said, no. And so I, well, you said, come back every night after work and I will teach you how to get your driving license. And about three months later, she helped me to memorize the 69 questions. So when I took the test, I passed. So when I went back to see her the next day and told her that uh, I passed my test, she wanted to know why she wanted to know if I would consider to continue on my education, to come there every night. And I said, no. And then she asked me if I thought I had a good mind. And I didn't answer that one because, uh, you know, I've always felt to keep your sickness alive, you have to convince yourself. And I felt that I knew she liked me. But I thought she felt sorry for me. I thought she was saying this to make me feel good. See, I, I, I never questioned Canadian Army. Never questioned it. I just accepted that uh, I wasn't teachable. And I think that I have that type of a sickness. I have a feeling that uh, I am a type of a person that by myself I would have never been able to accept the truth. I've always looked upon it as if it was something that it took something away from me that I, that I want you to know in order to accept me. I, I never looked upon it as Terry, the only, the only honorable thing in man is the truth and there is no substitute. There is nothing to replace it. And if you don't live with the truth, then you live with the feeling of unworthiness. But I also believe 
that I, I needed to come back here. I don't think that I was stupid. I would think I was so sick that I could not understand or believe what the lady was saying. I know the second step says, the key that opens the door to our program of recovery, it is willingness to believe. But to believe, one must become teachable. I don't think that I was capable of believing. Uh, I think that, uh, that when I look at my life, that from the time I could remember sleeping between two mattresses, I've always wanted to be somebody. I never wanted to be me. But I live in a dream and not reality. But it felt so good when I dreamt. <laughs> it felt much better than living in reality. So I think I needed time. But here I was, I had my driving license. And Paul, who owned the restaurant, came to see me the next day with 11 passenger station wagon and he said, John, you can have this car for $750. I said, where the hell am I going to get $750? He said, you only need 200 and some dollars for the down payment. Ask the lady upstairs, she might give it to you. So here I go again upstairs where I was working and this lady gave me enough money for a down payment and here I was in my 50 year sobriety. I was a president in my own company. I had a driving license and I had a car. And I said to myself, now I'm going to look for me a girlfriend. But I had this 40 in front missing. And I felt that you couldn't find a decent girl with four teeth in front missing. <laughs> and that's the only thing I lost in drinking. You know, in Syracuse, New York, there is a, a place called a slave market where all the runs by the state for the bums. You go there and get a job and get paid right away. Bums have to live that way. <laughs> it's funny when you look back now. <laughs> but I got a job unloading a boxcar load of bricks and I finish Saturday afternoon and I get paid and I start drinking also in Syracuse New York there is a barroom called Smitty's Smitty's where all the New York Indians drink I don't drink in Smitty's because I'm a Mi'kmaq Indian and Mi'kmaq Indians and New York Indians don't communicate too well and every once in a while 20 of us Mi'kmaqs would get drunk and we'd go to Smitty's and we would communicate. <laughs> and, and I was drinking this day and I had long leather gloves that I've used unloading a boxcar and I was walking by Smithers. But I had no intention of going in there. But as I was walking by, somebody opened the door and threw this guy out and that's where I met Smiley. Smiley is a little Irishman with a degree. And I mean, he weighs about 90 pounds. So I pick him up and I said to him, what in the hell is wrong with you? He said, it's those Indians inside. Well, I said, they can't do that to you. He says, no, they can't. I said to him, what do you say you and I go in there and clean them up? Smiley said, it's a good idea. Well, by the Jesus, it wasn't a good idea. 
Now, I woke up in a general hospital and I lost four teeth. And Smiley said in there without a scratch. And you know, you know, Smiley and I used to wake up in jail. We used to wake up in jail and he used to sit in there. You know, used to, I used to say to myself, he never has a scratch. You know, you all, so I said to him one day, Smiley, I'll come that I can get so messed up and you never had a scratch. And he, he, he's the most sincere look person. That's why he's such a good bum, you know. He, he looks at me with all sincerity and said, John, don't you know I'm a college man? <laughs> Something to be said about being a college man. But I had these four teeth in front missing, and uh, I'm a sensitive person, you know, and I, I felt that you couldn't find a nice girl with four teeth missing. I met a dentist in AA, and, and so I watched him about three weeks. He, he was one of those easygoing type of people. See, I was looking for someone that wouldn't hurt me. And so I finally stopped him one night and I said to him, I have a little problem and I'm wondering if you could help me. He said, what's the problem? Well, I said, I'm looking for a girlfriend. And uh, I have these four teeth missing and I was wondering if you could do something about it, like put them back. He gave me his card and he says, call my secretary, and I did. And I went over to see him, and I sat down, and he opened my mouth. And this guy, he wanted to pour 14 teeth. That's before he gave me four. And I said to myself, I shouldn't have come here. Then he said, we have to fill the rest of them. I did not there were that many left. I said to him, how long that's going to take? He said, if you keep all your appointments, It'll take about three months. Well, I said, I waited all those years. I can wait for three months. And I never remember, I'll never forget tonight, the day I got my teeth, the ones I got now. I was so happy, I rushed home, and I looked in the mirror, and I laughed for two hours. <laughs> I met Mary in AA. She, she run, uh, she run uh, home of an alcoholic women, a place called Faith House. She says to me, John, I'm told that you have a car. I said, 11 passengers. <laughs> she said, I, I'm I have nine girls that I'm looking for someone to bring them to a meeting. Would you be interested? I said, I would. <laughs> and uh, that's where I met my wife, Kathy. I bring these girls to a meeting, and on my way back, I said to Kathy, how about a date? And she said, no. <laughs> and that's one thing I have trouble with. Because I get hurt easily, and I don't suffer well. But you know, I was sober better than five years, and it, it would start working. On my way home, I said to myself, who in the hell she thinks she is? <laughs> Here she is living in the faith house. She's got nothing. And here I am. I'm president in my own company. I own my own car and new set of teeth. Who the hell wants her anyway?
So next Thursday night, I picked the girls up again, and on our way back, I said to her, how about a show in Boston Sunday? She said, okay. So we went to show in Boston, and on our way back, I asked her to marry me. <laughs> she said, but I don't know you. And I said, well, we still have five miles to go. We'll get a point. <laughs> So we got married. <laughs> we stopped the car in uh, my 11 passenger station wagon and we count our change. We had $85. And we decided where to go and we couldn't go to see our relatives because there were a type of people that they didn't like alcoholics. They, uh, they, they used to wear round hats with long feathers and they never and especially when they find out that Kathy was an alcoholic they didn't like that and especially when they find out that she married an Indian without feathers they didn't like that either <laughs> and you know it's funny about people now that I live in a 14 room house and my wife has a new car and I have one you can't get rid of the bastards <laughs> When they arrive, I would say to Kathy, assholes arrive. <laughs> My spiritual expression. We decided to go back home. I have been away for 21 years. But I, I like what AA says, that uh, one needs the spiritual support in order to accept one's own footsteps. And, and I think that's true. I think that uh, my past, intelligently, intellectually, or whatever you wish to call it, has always robbed me emotionally. I could not accept my past. I, I, I just like to destroy things when I think about uh, things that happen in my life, like... Uh, you know, I've lost twin boys in the same, twin brothers in the same year, and my mother used to write notes to Indian agents, and that was 14 miles, and she would wrap them around in my hands, and I would travel, and my family was hungry. But there was no food, and uh, my mother used to say when my brothers and sisters were crying, Tomorrow, John will get food. But you know, I knew after a while there was no food. I knew when I walked 14 miles there was no food. And then, when my, when my mother was dying, I was sleeping with her. I remember asking her one morning if I was going to die too. And she said, no, she said, you're, you're so different and you're so strong and I'm so happy that uh, you never cry. And so my mother never knew I cried. And I'm happy about it today. 
But I remember when she asked me to bring the note for the last time to an Indian agent to get a jar of Vaseline because she's been in bed, she couldn't get up, and her body was sore. And that, that I remember well because it was in winter and it was snowing and I, I arrived there and I gave an Indian agent a note and he looked at it and he threw it on the snow and shut the door in my face. And they laughed at me from the window because I wasn't dressed and because my hands were wrapped up with rags. And I learned to hate. And I wasn't ready with that type of a sickness that I had. I wasn't ready to face the past. And, and of course I didn't know that. I brought my wife to a reservation and I made her life very uncomfortable because I was driving my car too fast. I was not reasonable. I was dangerous. My wife was so scared she didn't know what happened. And we rushed back to Marlboro. And when we arrived there we had $35 left. And then we got ourselves a room, three room apartment that we paid $13 a week. And we had absolutely nothing. Kathy and I had absolutely nothing except the coffee table that was given to us from a fate house. And even newlyweds cannot sleep in coffee table. <laughs> so we slept on the floor. But you can have a lot of fun on the floor too. <laughs> I don't want to discuss. You know, I spoke in Westchester County one time and all the Elkies are rich over there. I mentioned the fact that you can have a lot of fun on the floor. And after the meeting, this lady says to me, young man, she said, I don't know how much fun you can have on the floor, she said, but I know you can have a lot of fun on the oriental rug. <laughs> I said, at least you identify. Anyway, while we're laying on the floor, I said to Kathy, you know, I'm the only one left and I would love to have a boy. And uh, if you give me a boy, I'll buy you a diamond. And it's interesting when you look back. I couldn't afford a bet, but I certainly was promising a diamond. <laughs> Beautiful thing about Kathy and I, she was sick enough, so she believed me. <laughs> and this Christmas, this Christmas, she was in a hospital waiting for a boy and I walk into a bank first time in my life you know sober six years and I wanted two hundred dollars and you know first time in my life I find out that there was such thing as collateral I don't know what in the hell it was you know all the meetings I went to nobody talks about collateral the fellow says to me you don't have collateral I said to myself, I wonder where the hell I can find that. <laughs> I found what the hell it was. I'm glad I never told him. What is it? I said to Paul, who owned the restaurant, you know, they wouldn't lend me any money. I've been to three banks. And Paul said, John, what do you want to do? It's pray. I said, Christ, Paul, they don't need God. They need collateral. None <laughs> of these people give you a screwy advice. In desperation, I went to uh, Hudson, which is seven miles from Marlboro, and I met a man who was retiring that year. And I told him the simple story. 
why I wanted some money. He says, you know, it's very good, but we don't lend money that way. Then he says to me, you know, I've always prided myself when I seen an honest face. <laughs> Mine was sick. <laughs> she said, how much do you want it anyway? And you know, he sounded so good. I said, $400. <laughs> and that's where I started. And I got my $400 with a little preaching. And I went to the jewelry store and I said to the guy, you show me the best diamond that you have. And he did. I said to him, show me the cheapest one that you have. And he showed me one that I could bought for $150. And I said, I'll take it. And then he said, you want to charge it, of course. I said, of course. <laughs> and I, I, and I got the diamond and I brought it to my wife and I went home. And about three o'clock in the morning, my wife calls me and she's still, she's crying and she said, honey, it's a girl. I said, you have to be kidding. I bought, I bought some feathers for the boy. The girl. Boy, was I disappointed. But next Christmas came along, and my wife was in there again. And I received a call, and she's still crying. She said, honey, it's a girl. But you know the old saying that experience is a great teacher. You know, my wife loved me, and I knew she wanted to give me a boy. So I went over to see her, and I said to her, don't worry about it, honey. Just have an open mind, and we'll try again. <laughs> I learned that in a program. So next Christmas came along. I was in there. My wife was in there again. I received a call, and she's still crying. This time it's twin boys. <laughs> then I got scared. I went over and I said to her, what do you say that next Christmas we hang our stockings and wait for Santa Claus? And we did well for a couple of years, then the girl came along, and a couple of years later the boy came along, and now we have six children. You know, can you imagine if, if someone had told me that one day I'd be telling this type of a story to an AA meeting? It's amazing when you look back. Someone was saying the other night in discussion meetings, said, every time I come here, he said, what I find out, I got so far to go. I said, it's funny. When I come here, I find out, my God, I've been a long way. I have come a long way. And I can be so happy one day at a time. I am be I'm being taught that there is more in life. There is so much more. Many things that I that I'm grateful for that happened to me once I was hired by the government. I became a director in three reservations in the state of Maine. I took out my coveralls, I rented my house, I moved my six kids and my wife to Callis, Maine. I had a nine-year contract from the government. I, I bought a new suit, tied to match, shined my shoes, 
and I walk into my office that I choose to wall to wall conference the color that I wanted. I walk into my office and I met my secretary, built like a brick house. <laughs> and I had phones that lit up. <laughs> I didn't dare touch anything. <laughs> the next office was Mr. Collins, the psychiatrist. The other office was psychologist. Upstairs was an Indian education, and here I was, wearing a tie. Can you imagine if you see me walking into an AA meeting with long hair, wine sores, dirty? Can you imagine if... Can you imagine if... Would you believe that one day I'll be a director in three reservations in the state of Maine? <laughs> but on the other hand, I suppose if you see me laying with a, in the sidewalk with long hair, wine sores, and dirty, you would never stop and say... Now there lies a perfectionist. <laughs> I mean, you're not that smart. While I was over there, I received a call from the University of Maine. They wanted an Indian speaker in the adult education program. They paid $40 an hour. Would I be interested? I said I would. I went over there and I spoke for one hour. And I was so impressed with what I said, I gave them half an hour free. <laughs> there are so many things, I suppose, that happens to all of us that we've been grateful for. I've been, sometimes I've been treated in AA like if I was something special. You know, traveling different places. And it never, it never ceased to, uh, the experience always makes me feel good inside. And Tom was sitting over there, he invited me to Washington. You know where I stayed? You wouldn't believe it. Hotel Lafont, you ever been there? I'm telling you. I walk in, in that room and I said to Kathy, you should see the bed I had. Eight people can sleep in a goddamn tent. <laughs> I said, white man lives funny. Look all the extra space. <laughs> the second thing that I noticed, I had two keys. And I said to myself, I wonder what the next key is. You know what it was? A liquor cabinet. I must have about 100 bottles of whiskey in there. Can you imagine me standing in a sidewalk for seven years looking for a nickel <laughs> to get a bottle of cheap wine and here I am. I got hundreds of them. But I couldn't help it. Before I left, I stole eight of them. <laughs> I said to Kathy, which is a good liquor. So what do you want? Well, I said, it's, it's too bad you have to waste all of it. He said, you don't dare take that, he said. Suppose they find out. I said, it's too much. They can't find out. Well, she said, the one you can't pronounce, them the ones are good. I said, I can't pronounce any of them. <laughs> so I took the ones that bottles looked funny. And, you know, and I took a bottle of wine, and Kathy and I, 
Kathy, my wife, she, you know, she has, she picks stray cats and dogs and people. And we have people living with us a lot, usually foster kids who are running away from foster homes, and they're always wound up at home. Anyway, we arrived from, uh, from Washington, and we had a girl been there for three weeks until the social worker can find her a home. And we find out that she was having a 16th birthday. So while the kids buy presents, and uh, because I have a daughter now, you know, be 18 in Christmas. And I have one going on 17, and one that's been every year, you know, we had one. And, uh, so uh, anyway, while they're finished singing, happy birthday, I arrived with a wine bottle that I stole from Washington. <laughs> so I'm saving it for a good purpose. But can you imagine, can you imagine a, a person like me sat there with all the booze, and it never once, it never once came to me that it would taste good. Can you imagine? And can you imagine that I stood in a sidewalk for seven years, and I'm a sensitive person. I get hurt easily. I don't like to beg. I'm, it's not in my body. And I suppose you've done things, too, that you would never done. It's not easy for me to beg. And I think that's part of my life that I will never really accept what Booth has done for me. Second is, all my dreams have come true. When I slept between two mattresses, I used to dream that someday I will have a big home. I have a 14-room house. Someday I will have a nice girl. A lot of you met my wife, Kathy. You know, she thinks some, something special. <laughs> I used to dream that someday I will have a nice clothes. I used to dream that someday I'll have two cars. I have today. One belongs to my wife and one belongs to me. The only thing changed. I used to think that if you had these things, then you wouldn't feel the way I did sleeping between two mattresses. In my recovery, I have been taught that the ingredients that nourishes the human hunger, it comes not because you have a wife that loves you. It comes not because you have a big house. It comes not because you have two cars. It comes not because you have children that loves you or you have nice clothes. I don't believe it is by accident that AA says that the key that opens the door to our program of recovery it is willingness to believe. In closing, I tell you about my friend Gibby who was an English professor, a professional wrestler, who was dead last year. I, met, I first met Kibby in a drying out place. I was speaking there, and every time I said something, this man was writing it down, and I felt very impressed. <laughs> Nobody ever done that when I spoke. 
One day I received a call to paint a house and I arrived there and it was Gibby. Gibby was also a millionaire. He caught a cancer. He had a battle with a cancer for 70 years. Gibby loved Robert Frost. I did too, but I don't understand Robert Frost. The only thing I know about him, when he said a little prayer, he said, Dear Lord, forgive me for all the little tricks I played on you, and I'll forgive you for a big one you played on me. <laughs> but Gibby would act, you know. One day I went to see a couple of people, a couple of couples in acting, because they called me, and I was sponsoring one of them. And I talked to the guy upstairs and he was mad at his wife and he was saying all kinds of awful things about his wife. Then I went downstairs on my way out and she said some choice words about him. <laughs> but I couldn't help on my way out. I'd seen a swimming pool built like a heart. There were two cars and there was one big, not a truck, but the thing that people used to go on vacation. They give you an impression, not only they're young, well-educated, but they're wealthy. I went to see Gibby. Gibby only had two more days to live. I arrived and he was upstairs because he couldn't walk anymore. He said, my Indian friend, come on up. I went over there and he had a, a little thing that doctor gave him that you have to breathe in to bring the bottle, to bring the ball up teach you how to breathe and he said John four days ago he says I couldn't move this ball now watch me he says and I'm sitting there just skin and bones but the spirit you know you have to admire someone like John Wayne then after she, he finished he said wait a minute he said I have something for you that he'd been studying about Robert Frost and he was going to tell me the last poem that he told me and then I left and I asked myself a question you know you can be young can be rich well educated but necessarily have nothing you can be old dying sick but this spirit of gratitude what is it what is it that a man is helping you to feel good when he has two more days to live what is God someone said he moves in mysterious ways wonders the way he performs and when I left that house Gibby he always makes me feel strong. He died and his wife called me one day. He said, I want to show you something. In this drawer, there were drawers, there were papers that high. The years that conversation we had, he used to go upstairs and wrote things down, I said. On my way out, I said, even in his death, makes me feel important. There is something about gratitude that I feel it can only come from God. Thank you very much.